Well, good morning, Greenhouse Church. It sure is a delight to be with you and uh, have the privilege of sharing the word with you. I uh, uh, spent five years of my life here in Florida and now reside in Charlotte, North Carolina, if you can forgive us for that. Um, so, uh, uh, but originally, uh, I come from South Africa, so you can hear the accent. It's a southern accent, far south. Uh, also have some colleagues that work with us in Doxadeo and the City Changes Movement, the Venter family, they're here today, uh, also from South Africa. But now residing here, and um, uh, Anton is playing a, a, a key role together with your pastor, John Lash, in the what's called Schools United process, where we have about 48 school principals in a nine-month program uh, coming together to talk as Christ followers, leading schools, how to be true to the mission of God here. It's amazing the opportunities that God is giving to the kingdom. And uh, we really salute you as a church. Your reputation goes ahead of you, uh, just in terms of your, your sense of mission and wanting to be part of what God is doing here in this region and across the world. And of course, in particular, within the educational space. You are playing a vital, vital role, and uh, grace be to you. So um, I was asked to speak to you today from the book of Matthew, and um, when I got the brief as to what we're speaking about in the next season, it's the difficult sayings of Jesus in the book of Matthew. Now when they told me to speak about that, I thought, this is a test. They're trying to see if I'm smart enough to be able to explain some of the very difficult things that Jesus had said. But we all know those difficult things are just because we have our own barriers in terms of not understanding the things of the Spirit. Um, so Today, a pleasure to dig into the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I'm sure you know that there are four Gospels. These four Gospels document the life of Jesus uh, in his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And um, every one of these Gospels had a particular audience in mind. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all were thinking about a specific group of people that would be reading their gospel letter. Uh, when we think about Matthew, it was specifically written with the Jews the Israelites in mind. So when Matthew writes, you recognize that he's trying to address issues that the Jewish community were grappling with. And um, Matthew, you might recall, was one of the 12 apostles. Uh, 
So he journeyed with Jesus. He saw so much, he experienced so much in his engagement with Jesus. But because he was focusing on this Jewish audience, we see that he emphasizes the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And um, when he speaks very interestingly about the kingdom, which was the message of Jesus, we see that he speaks about the kingdom of heaven different to the other gospels who would speak about the kingdom of God. And there's a reason why he would speak about the kingdom of heaven and not the kingdom of God because the name of God, a good Jewish person would not want to write the name of God in, in fear that they might be taking the name of God in vain. And so true to that tradition, Matthew speaks about the kingdom of heaven, but it's the same thing. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, same reference because there are some references in Matthew that are repeated exactly by uh, Mark and Luke where they would speak about the kingdom of God and as I said, Matthew would speak about the kingdom of heaven. And so he presents Jesus as this long-awaited Messiah uh, that fulfills all the promises, the messianic promises given to Israel and highlighting Jesus as the Savior and the King. But what is interesting about Matthew is that he, he comes to the end of Jesus' life and he's the one that captures this concept where Jesus gives the mandate to his disciples and he says, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. Now, here's where I want to share a few thoughts with you today and I am of the opinion that this, this very statement must have been the most difficult statement for Jewish people. The fact that Jesus says, and we read this in Matthew 28 from verse 19, where Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You have to understand that this challenged a Jewish audience so deeply because they were expecting the Messiah to come and be king of Israel. They were thinking Jesus was the savior that would come and overthrow the government of Rome, which were oppressing the people of Israel, and that they once again would have their king and they would position themselves amongst the nations as God's people. And here Jesus comes and he challenges fundamentally that concept. This must have shattered their thinking. Now, interestingly enough, 
They did not go to all the nations until there was trouble in Israel and the pressure became so much that a what is called a diaspora took place, a, a movement out of Israel and that's when the gospel started to be shared across all the world. But you see, what this, this concept really speaks about is Jesus had a mission to the world. Jesus did not just come for Israel. Israel was, was serving a purpose up to a particular time so that the promised Messiah could be birthed, so that the world could be included. The promise given to Abraham that through his seed, the nations of the world will be blessed. And here we see how Jesus speaks to his disciples in various ways right through his ministry and uh, even after his resurrection to recognize that he is sending them into the world. I want you just to think for a moment about the disciples after the crucifixion. You know, that was a... A life-shattering weekend. They had a certain belief about Jesus. Now Jesus has been captured. He has been killed. He's dead. The disciples are together in this little room and they're anxious. They don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. They've been traumatized. Their whole life has been turned upside down. And the next moment, Jesus appears appears to them he has just been resurrected from the dead and we read about this in John chapter 20 it says and Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them peace be to you shalom wholeness be to you and then he said and when he had said this he showed them his hands and his side it's as if Jesus is inviting them into redemption. Saying, listen, something has happened that will vitally change your lives. You have been included in the greatest moment in history. You know, we have to understand, we have been included in redemption. It's not something we are still negotiating with God. We have been included. You know, since coming to the United States, we've been attending some of your sports events. And uh, we don't really understand them. Because it's kind of different here, right? I mean, you play your football with helmets on and then ride your motorcycles without them. We... But I watch the fans. It's interesting what happens to a fan when their team wins. Suddenly they have an attitude. Suddenly they can't wait to speak to somebody. And if you ask them who won, they answer, we won. You say, what do you mean we won? You did nothing, man. <laughs> you, just, you just gave advice to the ref. Say, no, 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 no. When my team wins, I win. You see, that documented victory 
victory somehow has an effect on my life. I feel included in that reference. That reference has a particular influence on my life. It influences how I feel. It influences how I think. It influences how I speak. It influences how I function. Why? Because that documented victory suddenly becomes my victory. I am here to announce to you today that 2,000 years ago, a victory was recorded and you are included in that reference. His victory is your victory. His triumph is your triumph. And you have to see yourself included in that context. Jesus invites them into that. He says, come see my hands. Come see my side. And then he makes a statement. He says, as the Father has sent me. I send you. You know, when I think about this, I'm thinking, Jesus, these guys are traumatized. Don't you think just a little bit of counseling would have been good? Just a little bit of, yes, guys, really sorry. You had to go through all of this. You know, it's as if Jesus knew that when you get in to alignment with the mission, there is a therapy, there is a healing, there is a grace that starts to become part of your life when you start living beyond yourself as an instrument of God's grace to others. But it wasn't just after Jesus was risen from the dead. We see that before Jesus died, just before he was about to die. This was what was on the mind and the heart of Jesus, that we would be engaged in our world. Listen to what he prays in John 17. He says, I do not pray that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then he says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And then he makes this Big statement again. As you have sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. You see, mission was always on the heart of Jesus. Everything Jesus was doing in terms of engaging his disciples was bringing them on this journey so that they could understand mission. So this brings us to this question, how do we as the church engage our world? Well, over the years, the church has taken various positions or postures towards the world. Let me just share with you four positions that the the church has taken. The first one that we often see is what can be called the protesting church. Well, this is where the church shows up to say that they're against something. 
Now we know there's a time for the church to have a prophetic voice to our world, but here's the problem. If we only show up when we're against something, the world will only know us for what we're against and never know what we are for. There's a second position that the church has taken over the years and that can be called the absent church. This is where the church isolates itself from society. It withdraws from the context of our world and what happens is we become our own little enclave waiting for Jesus to come and here's the problem. When we isolate, we become irrelevant. The world marches on. And we will have other thought leaders and influences designing the context of our world that we live in if we are absent. Well, then there's the third position that the church has taken. This is where the church says, no, we have to get involved. We have to be part of. And, and so you integrate within the world, but you integrate in such a way that you do not represent kingdom life. You do not represent kingdom value and consideration and so what happens is you now engage no longer as salt and light but you start to become just like the world and so you assimilate the very value system of the world and that happens many times so that's the cultural church and we recognize all three of these have, have measures of, of challenge to it. So how do we engage our world? Well, Jesus was our model. This is what we can call the incarnational church. And this is what we read. You know, I love the message translation of John 1.14 that says, and the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Jesus moved into the hood. He became part of. Listen just how powerful this is. This is the God of the universe taking on flesh to come and live and dwell amongst us. Be with us. He didn't isolate himself and from a distance give us advice. He became one of us. He walked towards our brokenness. He walked towards our confusion. He engaged within our world. The author of it all became one of us. This is a powerful concept and that's called the incarnation where God becomes flesh in the New King James Version, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Isn't this amazing? Listen to this principle. He becomes part of us. He becomes flesh. He dwells amongst us. Us and we beheld his glory. What is this glory? John says it was him showing grace and then introducing truth. 
I think the order is very important. Jesus always led with grace. He embraced people. He did not, he did not stand at a distance and point fingers at their brokenness. He walked towards their brokenness and embraced them. And in that embrace, there was a moment where he introduced truth so that they could be set free because truth sets you free but here's the problem we many times want to lead with truth and if you accept my truth then I will show you grace what if we change the order and did it the way that Jesus did with grace and truth and so Matthew as he writes he wants us to understand how Jesus crossed cultural divides how he crossed over to others that the Jewish people did not feel comfortable with now let me quickly just run you through a few things that Matthew does he's so smart when he writes this to the Jewish people he starts off by saying when Jesus was born the Magi the wise men came to visit Jesus now you have to understand him introducing this to the Jewish community was pretty radical because he's saying there are Gentile leaders who recognized there's something special happening and from the very beginning he introduces them into this story. And the Jewish reader reading this recognized these people re representing Gentile nations were welcome to come and worship Jesus. Then in Matthew 8, he speaks about the healing of the centurion servant. Remember, this is challenging for a Jew because they hated the Romans. The Romans were the oppressors. And here comes this the centurion and says, would you speak a word that one of my men can be healed? And then Jesus commends him and says, I tell you, no one in Israel have I found such faith. Matthew goes and documents that. That must have been a shocker for the these religious people, the people of faith. Can you see what Matthew is doing? He's helping them to understand Jesus goes beyond in terms of engagement. And then the encounter with the Canaanite woman, which is in Matthew 15. This is a powerful story of this woman desperately seeking deliverance for her demon-possessed daughter. And initially, it seems as if Jesus dismisses her. You remember that? Because he says, I've only come for the lost sheep of Israel. But there's a point being made here. As she persists, we see she demonstrates remarkable faith and this incident highlights the response of Jesus to this faith regardless of the cultural boundaries revealing his heart for all that seek him. And then, of course, Matthew himself, he documents this in his gospel in Matthew chapter 9 where he is called as one of the disciples. And remember, he was a 
tax collector. The tax collectors were hated by the people of Israel because they were seen as sellouts to the oppressors, to the Roman government. They were colluding with the Romans, taking money from Israel and giving it to Rome. I mean, this was the worst thing you could be. And Matthew introduces that into this. And then he, he, he wants them to understand. Listen, it was not just that Jesus accepted me, but Jesus even hung out with my buddies. I love the way Luke then also documents this in Luke 15. Let's read that. And all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. But can you see how Jesus is he's teaching his disciples? He's stretching his disciples. He's bringing them into an understanding that he has a mission for all people. The most beautiful moment that we see in Jesus teaching his disciples is found just after Jesus uh, has, has fed the 5,000 with his disciples breaking the bread and feeding 5,000 people with just a little boy's lunch. The disciples are so excited. A miracle has just happened through their own hands. And then Jesus calls them together and makes this statement. He says, go over to the other side. You have to understand the disciples did not want to go to the other side. Why? Because it was the unclean side. It was where the seven nations of Canaan had settled. A good Jew did not go to that side. As a matter of fact, if a, a Jew went over to that side, had any contact with those people, when he came back, he had to go through a cleansing ceremony because he would now be seen to be unclean, just the fact that he had contact with those people. But Jesus says, go over to the other side. But it's not the first time Jesus says, go over to the other side. You can go read that. It's documented well also in Mark chapter 4, where Jesus calls his disciples together and says, we're going over to the other side. And they get in the boat and the disciples can't believe, why would we be doing this? Remember, they had a superstition that bad things can happen to you if you go over to the other side. There was this omen that they believed in. A good Jew does not go over to the other side. But Jesus said, let's go over to the other side. And then it's as if Mark heightens the tension of the story because he says, and Jesus went and slept. Now, I just want you to see this picture. These guys are now in the boat. They're rowing. Guys, we, why would we go to the other side? This is ridiculous. We're looking for trouble. And as they're rowing, and I mean, the conversation is loaded with, with anxiety and uncertainty. Why would we go to the other side? And as they are going to the other side, a storm comes up. And they're looking at each other and says, that's it. 
And now this storm is different to any other storm. They believe they're going to die. That's why when they awaken Jesus, those of you that know this story will know, they awaken Jesus and they accuse Jesus and say to him, do you not care that we perish? What are they saying? Why are you taking us to the other side? But what does Jesus do? He gets up, he quietens the storm. The disciples are looking at each other and saying, what kind of man is this? But they get to the other side. There's nobody there to welcome them. There's no welcoming committee because nobody was waiting for them. Remember, these people and those people didn't have contact with each other. So now they get to the other side. There's nobody there excepting some mad guy running full of demons between the graves. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, oh, that's our guy. And I see these disciples looking at each other. Say, this is going from, from bad to worse. I mean, it's like a mission strip from hell. It's like, what are we doing here? Now, they have to get hold of the guy. We don't know how they get hold of the guy, but they do. We know that they pray for him. They drive out the demons. You recall, the demons go into a herd of pigs the pigs then start running over the cliff. There is this mass suicide of pigs. And of course, now the pigs are dead. So what happens? It's affecting the economy. And now, I mean, if you touch the economy, you get the attention of the people. Now the whole region's people come down, but they are angry. They are furious and they are chasing Jesus and the disciples away and say, get out of this region. The disciples are back in the boat. I mean, they are ready to go back home. But the guy that was set free, he's standing there and he asks Jesus a question. He says, can I go with? And you will recall if you know the story, Jesus says, no. No. I always felt so sorry for the guy. But Jesus, he just wants to join the team. But Jesus was so smart. Jesus knew he had just found the key to a whole unclean region. And what does Jesus say to him? Go and tell your story. Go to every village, go to every town. Very different, remember? to what Jesus said to people on the Israel side, there where the 12 tribes are, there Jesus, when he did any miracle, he said, don't go and tell the story. Don't go into the villages. Don't go and spread this word because my time has not yet come. And if you do this, it might prematurely get people to understand and it will you know, kind of work against God's timing on this process. But on this side, he says, go tell your story. So they get back in the boat, they go back to the Israel side. Lots of wonderful things are happening on the Israel side. Miracles are taking place. The disciples are so happy. They've just fed 5,000 people through their hands, breaking the bread. They're high-fiving one another. They can't believe that this is happening. And Jesus calls them together and says, guys, go over to the other side. I can see these disciples looking at each other. This is crazy. One guy must have said, Jesus, you remember how those people feel about us, right? They hate us. They chased us away. They still have an issue with us. 
Jesus says, yes, I, I know. And by the way, this time I'm not going with. <laughs> I could just see the disciples. Whoa. Now they get in the boat. You've got to hear that conversation. Guys, this is crazy. And, and, and he's not with us. But the Bible says Jesus went up the mountain and his eye was on them all the time. What was Jesus doing? He was training his disciples for mission to be able to go to the other side knowing God is with you. Now they're rowing. It's getting dark. Midnight, the darkest hour, they're anxious, they're wondering what can happen to them. And Jesus decides after he's prayed now on the hill, he's going to go to the other side, but he's going to take the shortcut on the way there. He's just going to walk on the water. I mean, this is crazy stuff. Now these disciples are in the boat, they're rowing, they know bad stuff can happen. The next moment there's this figure walking on the water. I mean, they are so traumatized, they shout out, it's a ghost. Jesus says, no ghost, me. The Bible says he wanted to pass them. But Peter spoils the program. He gets out of the boat, starts drowning. Jesus has to save him, get him back in the boat. Now they get to the other side. Now listen to what happens. When they get to the other side, the rumor starts to spread. The one that set the demon-possessed man free is back. And people start coming, bringing those who are oppressed, who need healing, who need to be set free to Jesus. And miracle after miracle starts to happen. And then the next moment, 4,000 people gather. And they get hungry. And Jesus says, we're going to feed them. And they feed them. And then they gather seven baskets. Now, when all of that is done, they get back in the boat and they're going back to the Israel side. The disciples are so glad we're going back to Israel. And while they're in the boat, Jesus makes one of those big statements that the disciples really understood. And he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. What is Jesus saying? Beware, you remember how the Pharisees were not comfortable, the fact that we were reaching out to sinners and reaching out to people who, who were not necessarily the religious establishment. Beware of that spirit is what Jesus is saying. But the disciples couldn't figure it out. So, so here they are and they're busy speaking to each other. What does it mean? What does it mean? And Jesus is listening to them, the Bible says, and they come to this conclusion. There is no logic in this conclusion, but they come to this conclusion, we forgot the bread. Jesus says, guys, guys, come here, come here, come here. And then he makes this, this statement. He says, when we were on the Israel side, there were the 12 tribes are. We fed 5,000 people. 
how many baskets did we pick up? They say, 12. He says, you're right. He says, and then we went to the side. The Bible speaks of Decapolis, 10 cities, but everybody knew it was the seven nations. He says, we fed the 4,000. How many baskets did we pick up? They say, seven. He says, you're right. And you don't understand? And they didn't. And neither did I. Until one day somebody opened up this passage of scripture to us saying, hey, what Jesus was really saying to the disciples. He said, listen, when we were feeding the people in Israel on the Israel side and picked up 12 baskets, it was more than us just feeding hungry people. It was a prophetic statement that I am the bread of life and there's enough of me to feed all of the church, all of my people, all of Israel. But I wanna teach you that I'm not just the bread of life for this side. I wanna take you to the other side because on the other side I am the bread of life that can feed every other dimension of our world wow I believe we're in a season where God wants to give us keys to engage the other side where he gives you the opportunity as an individual to make a difference in the other side let me end. It's amazing when Jesus tells the disciples we're gonna feed these people, he says, go break up this group into groups of 50s and 100s. They break up the group in 50s and 100s and I don't know how they did that because it might have been very challenging. There must have been somebody asking the question, what is this? Why are you breaking us up into groups? What's this new thing? And they say, well, I don't know. We think we're gonna feed you. With what? Don't know. Remember, they'd never seen that before. But they broke them up. And then Jesus takes the bread and the, and the fish and he blesses it, the Bible says. Now, here's what's very important. Jesus doesn't go and break the bread and the fish and build a whole reserve so that the disciples can feel really secure. At least now, reserve matches need. What does he do? He breaks it. And he puts it into the hands of the disciples. And then every disciple is standing there with a little piece of bread and a little piece of fish. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, go feed the people. Now, I can just see those disciples looking at the bread, looking at the people, Looking at Jesus, looking at the bread. <laughs> Can you feel the tension of that moment? You know why it's so important? Because that's the tension you and I live in. We don't know that we will be able to feed. That's the tension we live in. But Jesus said, go feed. So what does he do? I see the guy go down to the group and Break the first piece, give it to the first guy. I guarantee you the first piece was a small piece. Why? He's a smart disciple. This stuff's got to last. I see him breaking the next small piece. Can you imagine the first guy? 
Okay, so this is it, right? You guys went to all this trouble for this. Now I see him trying to explain. I'm so, so, I'm so sorry, just, I mean, forgive. And then he breaks another piece. And then he breaks another piece. And as he's breaking the pieces, he realizes there's something miraculous happening in my hand. And so he's testing it. He breaks a bigger piece and a bigger piece and a bigger piece. And then I see how, whoa, help yourselves. It must have been something like that because they had so much. They picked up 12 baskets full. Here's the principle. Just start breaking the pieces. For the disciples, this was the biggest challenge. Go and make disciples of nations. Lord, how do we even think? Here's the challenge for us. God is challenging us to engage our world. Engage our other side. Engage tomorrow as you engage Engage on the other side. As you go to work, ask yourself, what is just the next small piece that I should break? How do I show more love? How do I show more grace? How do I engage people in a way where they will know this is the bread of life that I'm starting to break to my world? I'd like to pray for you. Receive the grace of the Lord upon your life. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your grace and your goodness upon our lives. Lord, thank you that we could recognize you are calling us as your disciples to, to, to truly break bread. That through our lives, we can affect our world. Pray for every individual hearing this word, Lord. Would you, through your spirit, just, just show them what a next step of God's grace, God's love will look like through their lives. I bless every individual here and online hearing this word to embrace the mission of Christ here in our world we thank you and we bless you lord jesus and all god's people say amen